Welcome to the mikvah.org podcast. The mikvah organization has been dedicated to the education and resources for Jewish family life since 1975-5735. You can support our vital work at mikvah.org forward slash donate. Thank you for your support and enjoy today's recording. Hi everyone and thank you so much for joining us today. I would like to introduce our third teacher as part of the summer learning series, Mrs. Ita Bro. Ita is a devoted mother and educator from Crown Heights and is also a mikvah.org certified Kala teacher. So today she will be teaching the first half of her two-part series on gleanings from Chazal on Tarasa Meshbacha and will be going more in depth about the story of a king who kept Tarasa Meshbacha against all odds. Good morning, nice to have you here. Today, we're going to be learning a section from Medrash Rabbah, from the end of Parshas Mitzoyra. Now, Parshas Mitzoyra is the Torah source for the concepts of Nida and Zava. And in case you're thinking, well, I've heard about Nida, but I'm not super familiar with what Zava is, uh, actually, in the next class on Thursday, we're going to be going more in more in depth regarding Nida and Zava. We're going to be learning a fantastic Sicha of the Rebbe, which explains these concepts in Avoida. Um, and there, I'll give a little bit more background information about the differences between these two types of Toma. But for today, for this Medrash, it's really not necessary um, to the understanding of the Medrash to to have like all of that background information. So I'm really just gonna give like an oversimplified summary of what Nida and Zava are. Uh, basically, Nida is when a woman becomes Tame from regular cyclic bleeding, like from her period, whereas Zava is when a woman becomes Tame from extra bleeding, meaning additional bleeding aside for, outside of her period. So it's two different types of tuma that are similar, but not quite the same. Now, nowadays, we really don't differentiate between the two. So no matter when a woman bleeds, we have the same halachic process. The halachis are exactly the same, regardless of when a woman bleeds. But it used to be, many years back, in the times of the Beis HaMikdash, that there were distinctions. There were different halachas that applied for when a woman was a nida and when a woman was a zava. So getting into this medrash, the medrash starts off uh, with bringing down the introductory pasuk. The first pasuk the Torah uses when introducing the concept of zava. And the first words are, the isha ki yazov zoiv dama yamim rabim. And when a woman has a flow of blood for many days. And there's this implied question in the Medrash, which is, why does the Torah say, Yamim Rabim? that she's bleeding for many days. Um, the flow, when a woman has a flow of blood, it's not that long, it's not that many days. So why, it, it almost seems like an exaggeration to say yamim rabim. And the Medrash answers this by bringing down multiple psukim in Tanakh, multiple places where we see that the Torah uses such an expression and says that something happened for yamim rabim for many days and Technically, it's not that long. It wasn't that many days, 
but we use this expression being that they, those days are yamim shel tsar. They're days of pain. They're days of difficulty. So it seems to be many days. Uh, I guess as the expression goes, time flies when you're having fun, right? But when something is not fun and not enjoyable, time just seems to crawl on past very, very slowly. <clears throat> So hence, we use this expression of yamim rabim when it seems, when, when the days seem to be so long because they're difficult days. So I'm actually not going to be reading inside like the first page and a half. Um, <clears throat> I, I mean, I, I just wanted to copy that whole section of Medrash so you have the whole thing for the sake of completion, but I'm not going to be reading inside that first section where the Medrash will bring down like a couple of, uh, a couple of other psukim that it says, I'm going to be starting to read uh, from page two. If you're looking at the second page of the Medrash, um, this is actually, if you can count 12 lines in, it's a line that starts with Vidichavasa, sorry. Um, <clears throat> and we'll see the Medrash will bring down another couple of sukim <clears throat> where the Torah uses this sort of expression. So similarly, it says, And it was in those many days. This is in Parsha Shemais, talking about the many days under which uh, under Paroi's rule. And the Medrash says, Was it that long? Was it that many days? Ella but al yedei shahayu being that these were days of pain, we call them, they felt like many days. And similarly, right, it says, in Megillus Esther, it talks about Ahasuerus' party, which lasted for 180 days. And the Megillah also uses this expression of many days, that it was Yamim Rabim. And the Medrash again asks, and was that so many days? Uh, I mean, I guess when we think about it, we say 180 days is like, that is a very long time for a party. But the Medrash is, is kind of asking in the grand scheme of things, 180 days is a half a year. It's not that long. It's not such a massive amount of days. So why are we calling them Yamim Rabim? Ella, but al shahayu v'chulu. Being that it was dot, 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 meaning being that these were days of difficult days for the Jews, we're calling them Yamim Rabim. Bahadim Psuka and also this Pasuk of the Isha Kiyazov Zoivdama Yamim Rabim. That when a woman has a flow of blood for many days. Meaning the reason why over here the Pasuk is saying that the Zava is bleeding for many days, even though that's not really the case, is because for her, it feels like many days. And the Torah is acknowledging that struggle. The Torah is acknowledging those feelings. Now, the Medrash is going to move on to just explaining more of like the pshat or the basic understanding of what do these words, yamim, rabim, what does it teach? What do these words teach us? So the Medrash says, Tani Rabichia, Rabichia learns, yamim shnayin. Days, yamim, implies two days, meaning it's a plural word, so it implies that it's got to be two, at least two days. Rabim, the additional word of many days, implies shloisha, that there has to be at least three days. Because the halacha is that for a woman to be a true zava, she would need to bleed for at least three days 
outside, aside for the time of her period. Mikan ve'elech, from here on, meaning from three days and up, ein zunida eladava. This would not, the woman would not be anida, but she would be in a state of zava. The word dava and zava are interchangeable. Often a dalid and a zayin can be interchanged with each other. So from here on, three, three days or more outside of her period, she would be considered a zava. And now the medrash will start pointing out a certain, a specific language or expression that the Torah uses. That when the Torah is talking about a zava, it actually says at some point, it calls her vehadava binidasa, which means the zava in her nida state, which is actually a bit of a puzzling expression if you think about it, because what would be more fitting is that when we're talking about a woman who has her period, who's a nida, we would say the hanida benidasa, and the nida in her nida state. But when we're talking about a woman who's having like extra menstrual bleeding, who's a zava, we would say vehadava bizivasa, the zava in her zava state. Uh, but here we're actually calling a zava by the name nida. We're attaching that label of nida also to the woman who is a Zava. And let's understand why the Torah uses, uses such an expression. So I'm continuing inside the Medrash. It's not written, the Nida in her Nida state, Ella, but it says, the Zava in her Nida state. Why is that? Amar Rabbi Simlai, Rabbi Simlai says, Tsar Godom Nasan Hakadosh Baruch Hu Leisha Zu. Hashem gave this woman a lot of pain. He's putting her in this difficult situation. Shemei Achar Shemeshameres Yemei Ziva. That after she waits the days of her flow, Yoisheves Umeshameres Zayin Yemei Nida. She needs to then sit and wait an additional seven days. So this is a reference to the Shiva Nakim, that meaning when a woman is a Zava, not only does she need to wait and be separate from her husband for the days when she's actually bleeding, but she actually has to wait an additional seven clean days. If you notice in the Medrash, it calls the Shivanakim Zayin Yemei Nida, seven Nida days. Now, the reason why the Torah is calling it Nida days is because the word Nida, like the actual translation, is that it means separation. So aside for waiting the days of her flow, she has to wait an additional seven days of nida, meaning seven days of separation, seven additional days of waiting. And that's something that's hard, right? All of these additional days. And the Torah calls her Anida. As we said, it doesn't say the Zava in her Zava state. Ella, but it says the Zava in her Nida state. So the Torah is specifically attaching this description of Nida, the label of Nida, even to a woman who is not exactly a Nida who's a Zava and who doesn't keep the exact same, again, back in the times of the Beis HaMikdash, who doesn't, who didn't keep the exact same halachas as the Nida. The Torah is specifically calling her Nida to acknowledge, to acknowledge the situation that she's in, to acknowledge her feelings, how she feels distance she feels uh, she, she she feels separate so to speak and distant um dis uh, somewhat distant from her husband um 
we're going to look at a little bit later a pirush called the Maharzu. We'll read it inside in a couple of minutes. But the Maharzu says that again, the Torah is specifically using this wording because because the Torah is like acknowledging and taking into account a woman's pain, the uh, a woman's feelings, right? Her feeling that she this this feeling of being nida of being separated um, and what that means for her and how tough that might be. So the Torah is changing its language or using language to really acknowledge that difficult state. Let's finish, let's finish off this section of Medrash inside and then we'll look at the Marzu. So Rabbi Yochanan b'shem Rabbi Eliezer b'noishel Rabbi Yossi Haglili Oimer. Rabbi Yochanan says in the name of Rabbi Eliezer, the son of Rabbi Yossi Haglili, and if for this woman, through her being separated for two, three days, meaning it's a number of days, it's not that long, the Torah calls her a nida. And again, the Torah is not calling a woman in a derogatory fashion that, you know, we're trying to uh, condemn her or label her with a negative label. The Torah is calling her Nida in a compassionate sort of way, in a way that acknowledges the difficult feelings she may be having. So if for just a number of days she's separate and the Torah will really like acknowledge that in a compassionate way and call her Nida, Anu for us. Sheperashnu mi beis chayenu, who have been separated from the house of our life, umi beis kotchenu visifartenu, and the house of our holiness and our splendor. This is a reference to the beis hamikdash. So we who have been separated from the beis hamikdash, kama yomim for how many days? The kama shanim and how many years? Kama kitzim the kama iburim. How many end dates? How many eras? Al achas kama vechama. How much more so? So what is the Medrash saying over here? To, ha- to understand this, let's look back at page two at the Maharzu, one of the Pirushim of the Medrash. So you're looking at the left-hand side where it says Pirush HaMaharzu. Um, and if we're going to look at the Dibur HaMaschil that starts from Shnaim Ushloisha Yomim. What does the Maharzu explain? So again, the Medrash had said once she bleeds for two, three days, then she's called the Zava. He has Zava, he says, this is the Zava. Sharoyadam Shnayimushlaishayamim that sees blood for two, three days, meaning outside of the time of her period. Nikreis Bishemiyuchad Nida. The Torah will call her with the unique name of Nida. Al Shame Shanida Umisrachekes Mibaila. Because she is Nida, meaning she is distanced, distanced from her husband. But from all other people, she is pure. In other words, she doesn't have to keep any specific distance from other people. She doesn't have to keep her chokais with other people. It's specifically with her, specifically with her husband that she needs to be careful and keep a distance, so to speak. As the Torah says, And the Zava in her Nida state. Which in a basic level means, Nida, that the Torah calls the Zava Anida, the Lenida Bime Nida, and the Torah obviously also calls Anida, which calls by, by that uh, by that name of Nida. So both a Zava and a woman who is Nida are called Nida. 
Why is that? The Torah calls her with this name of Nida. Because the Torah is acknowledging a woman's pain, as we've mentioned earlier. Meaning earlier in the Medrash, the Medrash had mentioned that we say that she bleeds for Yomim Rabim for many days, even though it's not so long, because the Torah is acknowledging how she feels, that she feels like it's a long time. She feels like it's many days. Here too, the Torah calls her Nita because it's acknowledging the woman's feelings. Anu Knesset Yisro. So, so too for us, the Jewish people, Shepirashnu Bechulu, who have been separated for so long, as the Medrash had said, how much more so, that Hashem will have compassion on us, and calls us a nida, and he brings a couple of psukim in Tanakh, where the Torah, where the, where the Navi calls Gidin in Galos, with this name, nida. <clears throat> as it says <clears throat> in Yecheskel, that their way before that they were before me like like the tumah of Nida and as is famously written in Echa that Yerushalayim was like a Nida and there are psukim in Tanakh where it references the Jewish people in Galos as a Nida <coughs> and then the message the hopeful message that the medrash is giving is that just like a woman who is nida will go back to becoming tahar she's not going to remain nida forever hashem has compassion on her she's going to become tahar so too with us hashem will bring us back and purify us speedily in our days now, if we look at the bottom, there's a pirush on the bottom called Eshed Hanechalim. And the Eshed Hanechalim gives a very beautiful, what he calls a meditation, that a person can have during Nida time, or when they're maybe feeling the pain or feeling the difficulty of Nida. A beautiful concept, and let's see inside what he says. So it's the Eshed Hanechalim, and the deeper Hamasko is Al Yedei Shepir Shachulu Anu Chulu. And I'll start reading this inside. He is Bainunus Hagdoila. This is a, the great meditation. Hanimsa believe Yakire Ruach Vahamivinim that is found in the hearts of those with a precious spirit and the understanding ones. That the primary attachment is only to Hashem and to his base Hamikdash. Uviltoi and without it, without the base Hamikdash, we are like wanderers from our true place. We can never really find our place if we do not have the revelation of Hashem in the base Hamikdash. And when a person will meditate based on a physical concept, meaning if you'll take a tangible physical experience that, that a person goes through, that that a woman who is beloved to her husband, being that she is, when she is compelled to separate from him 
for a short amount of time, in her eyes, she considers it to be many days. And that's why the Torah itself writes that this is Yamim Rabim, many days. Because it is many in her eyes. So too, the distance from Hashem, from Hashem's face, that only with Hashem's light can we see true light. How much, how much more so should a small amount of time of that distance be considered to us like, like a long time? And how much more so if this truly is a very long time? That Gullus really is, Yamim Ramim, really does last for a very very long time. So a beautiful sort of meditation that he gives where he's saying that a person can really channel those feelings, like those uh, difficult or heavy feelings that a woman might have when she's nido, when she's feeling that distance, uh, when she's feeling how, you know, maybe how much she's not enjoying it. Um, and she can channel those feelings to feeling pain over the distance from Hashem, to feeling pain over Galos. And now let's turn back to the next page, to page three. And we are going to, we're going to be looking at the Medrash Psiktavav. And here I'm going to get to really the main part, the main story that I wanted to teach today, which is a incredible story of a person who kept the halachas, these halachas of Nida, of Zava, of Taras and Mashpacha, despite all odds, against all odds, overcoming tremendous challenges and keeping these, and keeping these halachas. To the point that this person becomes like the prime example of somebody that kept these laws. Now, who are we talking about? I'll start reading it inside. Davaracher, another explanation on the Isha Kiyazov Zoib Dama, on a woman who has a flow of blood, Mi Kiem Mitzvah Ziva, who fulfilled this mitzvah, these halachas of Zava, Yechonyahu ben Yehoyakim, Yechonya, the son of Yehoyakim. So Yechonya, or Yechonyahu, or Yehoyakim, it's all the same person, was a king, actually the second to last Jewish king. Until Mashiach comes, he's the second to last Jewish king, the son of Yehoyakim. And the Medrash is going to give us the background information as to how Yehonya became king, a little bit about who his father was, how Yehonya became king, and how um, what happened that we consider him to be a prime example of somebody that kept these halachas of Taras HaMashpacha. Uh, now, let me just give a little bit of background as to who Yechonya was. Sometimes I may use the term, uh, my, my, I may use the name Yechonya. Sometimes I may say Yehoyachin. It is the same person. So like I said, he is the second to last Jewish king. His father was Yehoyachin. Now, Yehoyachin was king at a time, this is like the end of the Bias Rishon era, when the... When, when the whole kingdom of Yehuda was really in decline and was starting to be taken over by foreign powers. Now, Yehoyakim became king at the time that the up-and-coming power in the Middle East was Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Bavel. And at the beginning of Yehoyakim's reign, Nebuchadnezzar invaded Eretz Yisrael and he overcame the Jews in battle. 
But at that point, Nebuchadnezzar still did not intend to destroy Yerushalayim or destroy the Beis HaMikdash. Uh, he, what he did was he allowed Yehoiakim to remain king, but Yehoiakim was what we call a vassal king. He basically was subservient to Nebuchadnezzar, and he had to pay Nebuchadnezzar a large amount in taxes. He had to listen to whatever Nebuchadnezzar decided because he was just subservient to Bavel. Now, for three years, that's the, th that arrangement was kept. And after three years, Yehoiakim decided that he, was, he had had enough of being subservient to Nebuchadnezzar, and so he rebelled. The rebellion primarily consisted of just not paying taxes. Now, after three years of the rebellion, Nebuchadnezzar decided to put his foot down and to come and quash this rebellion. And this is where the Medrash over here picks up. So we're a couple of lines, of three lines in um, from Psik Tavav. This is on page three. So Amru, they said, When Nebuchadnezzar came up to destroy Yerushalayim, he actually was not actually destroying Yerushalayim at that point, but this is considered one of the first steps in the that, that led up to the destruction of Yerushalayim. So Allah the Yashav Loi, the Daphne Shalantoichia. He came up and he sat, he settled for a bit in Daphne, which was a suburb of Antoichia. Antoichia was then the capital of Syria. It was pretty close to Eretz Yisrael. And in a suburb called Daphne, Nebuchadnezzar had some sort of palace. Um, and whenever Nebuchadnezzar was like on the way to Eretz Yisrael, he would first stop and spend a little bit of time in Daphne. So he stops in Daphne, and Yarda Sanhedrin Gedoyla Likrasai, the great Sanhedrin, came down towards him. Amrulai, and they told him, Has the time for this house, for the Beis HaMikdash, um, has the time come for it to be destroyed? In other words, they basically had had a tradition from the Nevi'im that the Beis HaMikdash was destined to be destroyed, but they wanted to know if that's what, if, that, if, if the time has come, meaning if that's what Nebuchadnezzar uh, was intending to do at that point. Amar lahem lav. He told them, no. Ella Yehoyakim marad bi, but Yehoyakim has rebelled against me. Tnuuli v'elech. Hand him over to me, give him to me, and I will go. Bo etzloi, so the Sanhedrin comes to him, they come to Yehoyakim. Va'amru loi Yehoyakim, and they told Yehoyakim, Nebuchadnezzar ba'eloch. Nebuchadnezzar has requested you. And Yehoiakim was not just going to take this, uh, wasn't, wasn't going to take this um, sit, sitting down. He wasn't just going to submissively go over to Nebuchadnezzar, go and hand himself over to Nebuchadnezzar. Amar Lehen, he told them, is that something that we do? You push aside one life instead of another life? You're going to push aside my life in order to sustain your lives? Isn't that something that is not halachically permissible? You can't just hand over another Jew to be killed. Isn't it written, you may not hand over a slave to his master? Meaning even a Jewish slave who's owned by a non-Jew who escapes and the non-Jewish owner wants him back. You're not allowed to hand over that slave to his master. Right? In general, you're not allowed to hand over a Jew to be killed. 
Is that what you're going to do to me? Amr Loi, the Sanhedrin, told him, That's not how your grandfather behaved towards Sheva ben Bichri. This is a reference to David HaMelech, that after David's son, Avshalom, had staged a rebellion, one of the people that had joined the rebellion was Sheva ben Bichri. And after the rebellion was put down, David HaMelech and his generals were kind of weeding out different people that had joined the rebellion and killing them for, for um, rebelling against the king. And Yoyav, or David's general, was trying to find uh, Sheva, but Sheva had run away and he was hiding in a certain Jewish city. Now, Yoyav surrounded that city and he was threatening to kill the whole city if Sheva was not handed over. And ultimately, Sheva was handed over and the city was spared. So, uh, the Sanhedrin is saying, well, you know, that's not the way David HaMelech acted. He did, um, you know, demand that a person be handed over. And the Sanhedrin is not criticizing David HaMelech in this regard. The Sanhedrin is saying, yeah, there are actually exceptions to this halacha. There are times that halachically one is required to hand over a Jew to be killed. And this would be one of those times. But being that Yehoyakum did not listen to them, they had to take him by force. So Amdu Unitaluhu, they stood up and they took him, and they lowered him down to him. What it's basically saying was they, uh, they bound, they tied up Yehoyakum, and they lowered him down the city walls to Nebuchadnezzar. And here we have a little bit of a difference of opinion regarding whether Yehoiakim died in the hands, in Jewish hands, or whether he died um, in the hands of Nebuchadnezzar. The Chetzad Shil Shaluhu, and how did they lower him? Rabbi Eliezer or Rabbi Shimon? We have two different opinions. Rabbi Eliezer or Rabbi Nosson Oimer? Rabbi Eliezer says, Chai Shil Shalu Oisoi. They lowered him down while he was still alive. Kimadat Amar, as it says in Yecheskel, Vayetnuhu Basugar Bachachim. And they placed him in a collar with hooks. But the word Bachachim is Bachayim Ksiv, is written as Bachayim, meaning alive, meaning he's still alive alive when they were binding him and lowering him down. Rabbi Shimon Oimer, but Rabbi Shimon says, They lowered him down when he was dead. As this same Pasuk says, right, that he placed him in a collar with hooks, so that his voice would not be heard anymore. So he's understanding this Pasuk to mean that when they were binding him up, his voice was already not heard because he had already died. Amar Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi, Rabbi Yeshua ben Levi said, Ani I can uphold both of these opinions. I can put together both of these opinions. They lowered him when he was alive, meaning when they started lowering him down the wall, he was still alive. But he was a very pampered, delicate person. He was not a person that was used to any sort of difficulty or discomfort. And he died in their hands. Like even just while he was being lowered down, he died just from that experience. Now, what did Nebuchadnezzar do to him? Once Nebuchadnezzar got a hold of him, what did he do? 
Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Nehemia, again, two different opinions. Rabbi Yehuda, Omer, Rabbi Yehuda said, He took him and brought him around through all the cities of Yehuda, the Yashav Allah Bifaradimus, and he sat above he sat upon him in judgment, Baharagai, and he killed him. Of course, this would be following an opinion that Nebuchadnezzar was the one who killed him. The Kara Esachamar, and then he tore open a donkey, and placed him inside the donkey, meaning he placed Yehoyakum's corpse, his dead body, into the donkey. Hado Dechsiv, and that's why it is written in Yirmiyahu, Kavuras Hamar Yikavir. Yirmiyahu is prophesizing Yehoyakim's end and says that his burial will be the burial of a donkey. Rabbi Nehemia Oimer, Rabbi Nehemia says something slightly different. He took him and brought him around to all the Jewish cities, and he killed him. And then he cut his body up into olive-sized pieces, and he threw it to the dogs. And that's why it's written, His burial will be the burial of a donkey. Where is a donkey buried? Is it not in the insides of a dog? Meaning, according to Rabbi Nehemia, when it says that he'll have the same burial as a donkey, it doesn't mean that his body was placed inside a donkey. It means that he was eaten by dogs, just like a donkey's carcass is eaten by dogs after the donkey dies. Now, this is probably sounding pretty gruesome. You might be uncomfortable hearing this about Yehoyakim's terrible end. Um, and maybe you're thinking, why is this happening? And how could this happen? This is, after all, a Jewish king, and this is his end. So the Medrash actually interjects over here and starts describing Yehoy- who Yehoyakim was and how terribly he had sinned in order for us to understand that he really was unfortunately deserving of such a terrible end. I am actually not going to read inside all of these graphic details because the Medrash does get pretty graphic about his sins. Yehoyakim is for sure way up there on the list of kings that were Rishaim and that were terrible uh, sinners. He is very possibly at the very top of the list. Unfortunately, he really... uh, the way he lived his life was uh, was was really quite um, it was was quite horrific. Uh, he was a he was a terrible sinner. I do not want to read the graphic details because it's just difficult to stomach. It's difficult to hear, um, and we know also that the Rebbe was very careful not to bring out the negativity of another yid in Dibor, in speech. And certainly now, in the three weeks, I don't want to start harping on and elaborating on the sinful acts of another Yid. But just to understand what's going on and to put things in context, what's happening here is that the Medrash describes the mutilation of Yehoyakim's body, right? That's what we've read inside, and then explains to us what he had done. And if you would learn these sins, if you would like read all these details, a person would feel like, okay, that makes sense. That's actually a very fitting um, end for such a person, right? It elaborates upon different sins that he did, not only not only between him and Hashem, but also in interpersonal behavior. He 
unfortunately acted in an extremely immoral and cruel manner and had a very horrific lifestyle and that's why he was deserving of such an end. But I'm going to skip that part and I'm going to continue reading from the end of page four, the second to last line in the Medrash, where the Medrash says, Kevon Nebuchadnezzar, after the Nebuchadnezzar killed him, Himlich es Yechonia benoi Tachtov, he appointed his son, Yechonia, in, in his place. He appointed him as king. The Yarad Lai Lebavel, and then Nebuchadnezzar went back down to Babel. Yatsu Kol Bnei Babel, we're on the next page. Yatsu Kol Bnei Babel Lekalsoi. All the people of Babel came out to praise him. I think that was standard practice back in the days of kings, that when the king would return from an expedition or from a war, people would come out and, you know, parade and um, praise him and honor him. So they came out to praise him. Amrulai, and they told him, Mel Sisa, what did you do? What happened when you were away? Amrulahem, he told them, Yahayakum Marakbi. Yahayakum rebelled against me, Vaharaktiv, and I killed him. Vihimlachti, Yehonia benoi tachtov, and I appointed his son Yehonia as king in his place. Amrulai, the people told him, Masla Amar, the proverb says, Gor toiv mikelev bish loy serabe. A good puppy that comes from a bad dog do not raise in your house. Gorbish Mikelev Bish, a bad a bad puppy that comes from a bad dog. Alachas kama vekama, how much more so? So let's try to understand a little bit more what they were telling Nebuchadnezzar. We're going to look at the Pirush of Eitz Yosef, which is on the right side. Uh, the Dibur Hamaskil is Gur. And let's understand what they were telling him. So first he translates Gur as a Kelef Katan, a small dog, meaning a puppy. And there's this analogy that people say, that even a small puppy, that's good. Don't raise it in your house. If it comes from, if it's the child of a bad dog. How much more so? Kelev Shuhura, a bad dog. Uvami Kelevra, that comes from a bad dog. Shaloi Sigavlenu, that you shouldn't raise it in your home. Now, what basically they're saying is that, you're kidding, you appointed Yehoyakim's son as king. Yehoyakim was rebellious. He caused you problems. Why do you think the son is going to be any better. But here we're going to get to, if you are continuing in the Eitz Yosef, this is a very significant next couple of lines. So the Eitz Yosef explains, and Yechonia was bad, as is written about him, and he did what was bad in the eyes of Hashem, like everything that his mother and father had done. Rala Shamayim, he acted in a way that was bad towards heaven, Villa Brios, and towards people. So unfortunately, Yehoyachin or Yehonya was compared to like a bad dog, the son of a bad dog. He was also a Russia. He was very similar to his father. Um, and 
the, that's what the people were telling the people were telling Nebuchadnezzar, why are you appointing him as king? This doesn't make any sense. So let's go back inside the Medrash. Miyad Shamalahem, immediately he listened to them. And he came up and settled in Daphne of Antochia. And again, the great Sanhedrin came down toward him. And they told him, Has the time for this house to be destroyed? Has that time come? He told them, No. The person who I crowned king, given to me, and I'm going to go on my way. So they went and told Yohanyah, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar has requested you. And now Yohanyah was not going to be as foolish as his father to prevent, to try to, uh, to, to, to try to stop them from handing him over. And he realized that the smart thing to do was just to submissively go to Nebuchadnezzar. So what did he do? He stood and gathered all of the keys to the Beis HaMikdash. And he went up to the roof. And he said, Master of the world, Being that we didn't merit to be caretakers for you. Until now, we were trusted caretakers for you. Meaning you trust Trusted us to take care of your home of the Beis Hamikdash. Mikan ve'elech, but from here on, harei maftachoisecha lefanecha. These keys, your keys, are before you. Take back the keys. He's telling Hashem. Now this kind of sounds very pious. It almost sounds like a tefillah, which. I don't know, doesn't really fit with what we just mentioned earlier that Yohanya was actually a big sinner. So if you actually look at the Eitz Yosef, the Eitz Yosef, you know, I'm, I actually, I won't read it inside because we're a little bit pressed for time, but the Eitz Yosef on Hoyo Veloizachinu, he actually says there are a couple of ways you can read or interpret these words. Either he's saying it in a pained way, like, you know, expressing his pain and hoping that Hashem will have compassion upon him and upon the people. Or it actually could be understood that he's speaking in a insolent, in a derisive sort of way. Meaning that he's saying that, oh, you know, God, you're, you really would prefer to just destroy this whole place? Are we doing such a bad job? Such a bad job taking care of your home that you just want to, like, you know, get rid of the whole thing? Um, so it could be also interpreted in that way that he's speaking in a more chutzpahdik or insolent sort of manner. Now, what happened once he said that? Back in the Medrash, train Amayraim, there are two opinions amongst the Amayraim. Khar Omar, one of them said, Kimin Yod Shalesh Yarda, what appeared to be a fiery hand came down, Unitalasan Mimenu, and took the keys from him. The Khar Omar, and the other Amayra says, Misha'ashaz Rakon, Oid Lo Yardu. From when he threw up the keys, meaning he threw the keys up in the air, Oid Lo Yardu, the keys never came down. According to both of them, the heaven, right, the heavens, in other words, Hashem, accepted those keys. Now, again, this might seem, this might sound very pious and very special, but if you look in the Eitz Yosef, the Eitz Yosef says that this was not a very good sign. This was an indication that Hashem said, yeah, 
I agree. I do not want you to be a caretaker of my house. Um, you can hand over the keys. It's sort of, I guess, what the equivalent would be nowadays is if a person hands in their resignation and the boss, instead of saying, no, 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 please stay, is like, okay, thank you, right? I accept your resignation. So Hashem accepts these keys but he, because he's acknowledging that he is not happy with the avoida of the Jewish people. He's not happy with what the Jewish people are doing and he therefore accepts the keys of the Beis HaMikdash. What did the young Jewish men do? They went up to their rooftops and they fell dead. The Medrash is saying that there was a lot of suicide at this time and the reason was not just because, because this was a time that not only was the king taken away, taken into exile, but it was a really trying time for the Jews. At this time, Nebuchadnezzar actually exiled the best and the brightest of Yerushalayim. He exiled the Sanhedrin, all of the greatest Jewish leaders, or nearly all of the greatest Jewish leaders and teachers of Yerushalayim. Thousands of people were exiled at the same time. He also ransacked the treasury of the Beis HaMikdash, and he took with him a lot of the holy vessels. So it was a really, really uh, trying time, and unfortunately, you did have a lot of suicides. And that's why it is written in Yeshayahu, a prophecy from the Valley of Vision. What happened that you're all going up to the rooftops? So Yeshayahu foresaw this in his Nevoah. What happened then? What did Nebuchadnezzar do? Right? Once Yehoyachin or Yehonia hands himself over, he took him and imprisoned him in prison. And anybody who was imprisoned in his days, in Nebuchadnezzar's time, never left there. That was Nebuchadnezzar's policy, that whoever went into prison was there for life and never left. Al-Shun, as it says, the imprisoned ones never opened, the door never opened for them to go home. was exiled, the and the great Sanhedrin was exiled with him. Now, not only did Nebuchadnezzar imprison the king, did he imprison Yehoyachin and decide that he's going to just rot in prison for life, but the Medrash brings down that this was coming from Hashem's decree, that Hashem too had decided and decreed that Yehoyachin would be imprisoned for the rest of his life, that he would never leave and that he would never have children because he had not had children up to that point. So we'll continue in the Medrash. That's why it's written. Yirmiyahu is prophesizing about Yechonia's end. And he says, Is this a, a statue that is despised and shattered? He's comparing Yehoyachin at his end in prison to just a despised, broken, shattered statue. Now the word Eitzev can mean a statue and it can also mean a bone. Rabbi Abba Bar Kahana Amr, Rabbi Abba Bar Kahana says, this means like a bone which has marrow. That the time that you, when you empty this bone, it's not good for anything, has no use. So the Navi is prophesizing a Yohanna's end where he's compared to just a shattered statue or an empty bone. 
bo emptied bone, which has no use, which has no good coming out of it. And similarly, the decree was that Yohania would just rot in prison for the rest of his life, would not have children, would not have any good you know, outcomes, would not have any, would, would not have any continuation. But if you are pretty familiar with Tanakh or Jewish history, you may know that Yehonia actually ultimately did have children. He had a couple of sons, one of whom was named Shaltiel. So look at continuing the Medrash, Ad Shaltiel, until Shaltiel, meaning originally the decree was that he wouldn't have children. But then he ends up having children, one of whom is named Shaltiel. And the Medrash says that the name Shaltiel is significant because it hints to the circumstances under which Hashem decreed that he would have children. What does Shaltiel mean? Shaltiel means that Hashem asked. Shaul HaKadosh Baruch Hu in Shalmaila, Hashem asked, he requested of the heavenly court, and they undid his vow. Meaning Hashem requested that they undo his vow that Yohanyah would never have children. And they undid his vow. What's the background behind this? Why did Hashem or when did Hashem decide to undo this decree? So the Medrash gives us the background story. But Oysashah at that time, this is already years after Yehoyachin or Yehonia was imprisoned. Uh, years later, once the Beis HaMikdash was already destroyed and all the Jewish people were exiled to Bavel, at that point, Yashva Sanhedrin Gedoyla Aldaita, the great Sanhedrin, was deliberating. They were trying to figure out. Va'amru, when they said, in our days, the David Hamelech's line is going to stop. He's not going to have any descendants. Why is that? Because just to understand the, I guess, what was going on in that um, regarding David Hamelech's descendants. So Yehoyachin's grandfather's name was Yoshiyahu. Yoshiyahu had been killed in battle. Yoshiyahu had several sons. One of them, his name was Yehoyachaz. He was the next king. He was king for three months. And then he was taken captive and he died in Mitzrayim. The next son, his name was Yehoyakim. As we mentioned before, he, he became king next. And uh, he also was killed. Then you had, Yehoyakim had a son, Yehoyachin, whom we said was just rotting in prison. He didn't have any descendants. And another son of Yoshiyahu, Yehoyachin's uncle's name was Tzidkiyahu. Now Tzidkiyahu was the last Jewish king. He actually was still alive at that point. He was also sitting in prison in Bavel, and he had had children, but all of his sons were murdered at the time of the destruction of the Beis Hamikdash. So you basically have, uh, at the point, at this point, the line of David HaMelech is you have Tzidkiyahu, who's older. I don't even know if his wife was alive. If she was, she was probably past her childbearing years. Um, and you have Yehoyachin or Yehonia, who are both sitting in prison. And the Sanhedrin says, it looks like David HaMelech's line is going to end. This person about whom it is written, Hashem says, his throne will be like the sun, um, will, be, will be like the sun, uh, you know, uh, uh, 
I don't even know how to translate Negdi in this concept. But basically, the idea is that Hashem promised that um, David Amelech's throne or lineage will be eternal as the sun. How could it be that his line will stop? Is there anything we can do about it? Manasseh, what should we do? So they had an idea. They said, Let's go and appease, will intercede with the Gadelis. The Gadelis was a woman who was very well connected to Nebuchadnezzar's wife, to the queen. She was either the governess, like the nanny, that had kind of raised Nebuchadnezzar's wife, or there's also an opinion that she was the, um, the royal hairdresser. But she was really well connected, and the Sanhedrin felt like she would be a sympathetic person to speak to. So let's try to intercede with the Gadelis, the Gadelis Lamalka, and the Gadelis can speak to the queen, Umalka Lamelech, and maybe the queen will intercede with the king. So that's what they did. They went and they appeased, they interceded with the Gadelis, the Gadelis Lamalka, and the Gadelis spoke to the queen, Umalka Lamelech, and the queen spoke to the king. And then the Medrish gives us several different opinions as to what was the name of Nebuchadnezzar's wife. What was the name of Nebuchadnezzar's wife? Rav Huna Amar, Rav Huna said, Shmiram Shema. Her name was Shmiram. Rabbi Avin Omar, Rabbi Avin says, Shmiramois Shema. Her name was Shmiramois. The Rabbanon Amrin and the Chachamim said, Shmiram Shema. Her name was Shmiram. Al Yedei Shenolda Baram, being that she was born with Ram. Ram means thunder, meaning at the moment she was born, there was this clap of thunder, therefore they named her Shmiram. So we're not sure exactly. There's differences of opinion of her name, but we specifically want to mention her name. It's kind of like what we call nowadays to give her a shout out, right? To give her a shout out because we are so appreciative for what she did to help preserve the lineage of Malchus, the lineage meaning the line of Malchus based David. And if we flip to the last page or page six, so Nebuchadnezzar's wife decides to try to help them. When Nebuchadnezzar came to have relations with her, she told him, You're a king? Is Yochanya not a king? You seek to fulfill your manly role. And Yochanya cannot? fulfill his manly role. Now the Eitz Yosef explains that what her argument was, was that the standard protocol back then, what was accepted was that if a king imprisoned a different king, he had to provide for him properly. That king couldn't be treated just like any other prisoner, but the king who had imprisoned him really had to provide him with his needs. Um, And that often included giving that king access, at least occasional access to his wife. Um, And so that was her argument. You're like, you are not following what was accepted, you know, protocol or accepted uh, standard procedure back then. Why do you not allow Yehonia to be intimate with his wife? And Nebuchadnezzar agreed. Miyad immediately, he decreed that his wife, that Yehonia's wife, should be given to him. Not as a, a permanent thing. This was just a temporary, a one off, temporary one off um, agreement that for one night, Yehoyachin's wife would be allowed to spend the night with him and be intimate with him. The And how did they lower her to him? Remember, in this prison, they never, once you were 
put into prison, the door never opened um, for you to exit. Like the doors were just locked and they didn't open. So how did they lower her down? Rabbi Shapsay, Omar, Rabbi Shapsay says, They lowered her through the window. There was some sort of window very high up. We're talking about some deep, deep, deep pit. And somewhere high up, there was a window which maybe they used to like lower down food. So they lowered her through this window. Rabbanon Amri and the Chachamim said, they opened up the roof and lowered her through that. But the roof was openable and they lowered her through the roof. So she comes down to this deep, dark dungeon. When he came to have relations with her, Amra, she said, I saw what looks like a red rose, which is a poetic way of saying that she had started bleeding. This was not her period. This was um, unusual bleeding that just kind of started suddenly. And uh, many, many presume that this was just as a result of the fright, the very, uh, I guess, traumatic way in which she's lowered by ropes down into this dungeon. So that fright made her bleed at an unusual time. And she told him that she had seen blood. And here you have Yehonia, who keep in mind was a sinner, the son of a sinner, um, who was really not used to controlling his desires and controlling his impulses. And he has this one-time golden opportunity. He does not know whether this will ever happen again, that he will be able to be intimate with his wife. He has no idea if this is going to happen again. But Peresh Mimena, he separated from her. He did not touch her all night. Miyad Holchan, right away, meaning right after that night when she was lifted up and removed from the prison. Holcha Vesafra Vitahara Vitavla. She goes and she starts the Tara process. She counts seven clean days. She purifies herself. She toivels. She does the whole Tara process. Again, not knowing if she will be allowed to be with her husband again. And at that time, when Yohanya displayed such incredible self-control against all of those odds, Amr lo Hakadosh Baruch Hu Hashem told him, "Biyerushalayim loy kiyamtem mitzvah ziva." In Yerushalayim, you didn't keep the mitzvah of Zava. You didn't keep these laws of Tara Samishpacha. And now you're fulfilling these laws. As it says, Also you, when you're with the, with the blood of the covenant, I will send your prisoners free out of the pit. Uh, so Hashem says, because now you're remembering the covenant uh, that was made at Har Sinai. You're remembering Torah and mitzvahs. You're remembering the blood that uh, the blood that was like her shechted at Har Sinai that was made as a covenant that happened at Har Sinai. Bishvil Cain, because of that, Shalachti Asirayich, I will send out your prisoner, mean your prisoners. In other words, I will decree that you will ultimately be freed from prison. So let us just have a look at the maharzu on these words. Gamat bidam briseich. What's uh, what's going on over here? The maharzu. This is on the left side. He says ayin leel drasha acheres. So earlier on, there was a different explanation on this pasuk. The kan doirish al yechonya. But here we're learning out these words. We're learning this related to yechonya. 
And I will send your prisoners out of the pit. That is a reference to Yechonia. Who was imprisoned in prison. He was there for 37 years altogether. So he sat in prison for 37 years. But Hashem did decide that ultimately he would be freed. And at the end of those at the end of those 37 years, basically what happened was Nebuchadnezzar died and Nebuchadnezzar's son released all the prisoners and he released Yechonia from prison. This was uh, Hashem undoing his vow that Yechonia would never ever leave. So because of this incredible act of self-control because of him now deciding to keep this mitzvah. Hashem says, you remembered the blood of the covenant at Har Sinai. You're keeping the laws of the blood of Nida. Therefore, I will release you from the pit and you will ultimately be freed. Amar Rav Shabsai, Rav Shabsai says, Loizoz Misham, he didn't stir from there. Until Hashem forgave him for all of his sins. Meaning, immediately when this happened, that he just, you know, did not touch her all night, immediately Hashem forgave him for all of his previous sins, um, everything that he had done beforehand, up till then, when he was in Yerushalayim, Hashem forgave him for all of his sins. And let's have a look at the Eitz Yosef on these words. Shemachaloi HaKadosh Baruch The Eitz Yosef brings um, a specific, I guess, example of how we see a proof of how we know for sure that his sins were forgiven. Mishum because it is written in Yalkut, that a miracle occurred to him, and his wife, became pregnant, she conceived while standing up. What happened was that ultimately, Nebuchadnezzar did allow his wife to return to the prison another night. And this time, she did not become Tommy, and she did conceive, she became pregnant that time. And this, uh, the, the Medrash says that she actually, she conceived while standing. And had Hashem not forgiven his sin, he wouldn't have merited such a miracle. It seems like the reason why this miracle was needed is because this prison was very narrow. Yehoyachin was imprisoned in really very uncomfortable conditions, to put it mildly. And they could only have relations standing up. It wasn't even like wide enough for them to lie down properly. The Indian Hanes, Digmiri, and the reason this is a miracle, or the way we know it was a miracle, is because we, we, we learn that Ein Isham, Saberis Ma'umad, the Gemara says, a woman cannot conceive while standing up. Kedisa Bigemara. <clears throat> so a miracle happened that even though they couldn't even be intimate in the regular way and they had to have relations standing up, his wife still conceived. And this is indicative of the fact, this is a proof that Hashem certainly forgave him for all of his sins. Let's read, continue, uh, continue in the Medrash. Al-Oysasha, Omar, about that time, about this event, it is written, Kulach Yafa, in Shir Hashirim it says, Kulach Yafa, you are completely beautiful, Raya 
Yossi, my beloved one. Umum in ein bach, and you have no blemish. And if you look at again the Eitz Yosef on the right hand side, where it says al oiso sha'a, the Eitz Yosef says it's just describing the absolute one eighty, the complete turnaround that you have over here when it comes to regarding Yehonia. That tachas asher tchila love instead of what was originally written about Yehonia, that he's described as kechli ein like a vessel that nobody desires. Chazar ba'amor alav, Hashem goes back and now says about him, she'achar kach, that afterwards, matzachein be'ene Hashem, he found favor in the eyes of Hashem, kulach yatha, is completely beautiful, umum em bach, and has no blemish. So because of this act of keeping this mitzvah, despite all odds, Hashem forgives all of his sins, he, all his sins become washed away, and he's compared to someone who's completely beautiful without any blemish. Um, a heavenly voice came out and told the Jewish people, return wayward sons, and I will cure you from your waywardness. In other words, this event and this story with Yechania turns Yechania into a symbol of tshuva and into a symbol of the fact that Hashem will always accept a person's tshuva and it's never too late. And this, he becomes an inspiration for all Jews. Even somebody who feels like I've messed up so badly and I can never correct and Hashem is never going to want to accept me because you know, there's, I'm just so disgusting and I'm so terrible and you know think about what I did and etc Yehonia becomes a symbol that you know if Yehonia ben Yehoyakum if somebody who's compared to like a bad dog the son of a bad dog a sinner the son of a sinner uh, is he if he is able to completely turn his life around to do tshuva Hashem happily accepts his tshuva uh, and, and changes the whole trajectory of his life if that can happen to Yehonia then certainly every single Jew is able to also return from any of his sins or from any of his um, no, waywardness, the shuvu banim shayvavim. Now that is the end of the medrash that I wanted to teach. But just to sum up, I think there are so many really powerful messages in this medrash. We had first, we mentioned the whole concept of Hashem acknowledging and recognizing any difficulty that is involved in keeping this mitzvah. He even specifically uses wording in Torah in order to acknowledge how a woman feels, how it feels like so long, how a woman feels some sort of distance and disconnect. And Hashem recognizes the challenge. He recognizes, you know, how he, he recognizes what's in your heart and how difficult it might, it might be. There was also the meditation through which you can channel any heavy or difficult feelings that you may have when keeping her hokas, that you can channel that to try to feel the pain of gullus. And lastly, from this story, the lesson that we learn about it never being too late to repair. That even if this mitzvah was an area where you feel you weren't so great about or or maybe you stumbled, or maybe you haven't been keeping certain things so well, it certainly is never too late to repair. And Hashem is always looking and um, more than happy to accept a person's tshuva. Thank you so, so much, Ita. That was incredible. If you would like to sponsor Thursday's class with Ita about Nida and Zava according to Hasidus, you can email podcast at mikvah.org. Thank you so much for listening and have a wonderful rest of your day.